Well, good morning. Still morning, yes, it's still morning. <clears throat> we may be here in the afternoon, though, just FYI. Um, if you uh, if if you were here um, Monday, Thursday, this past Thursday and Friday, um, what we did is we put together a little sermon series, and uh, um, we did the uh, witness of Scripture on Thursday night from Luke 24. And then we did the witness of the apostles from Acts chapter 10 on Good Friday. And this morning, um, we are continuing in our series through Acts, and we are at the witness of Stephen. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6. And I'll tell you, it's a very long section of Scripture. It's the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts, um, or a you know, speech. And um, and so we're not going to go all the way through it. Uh, instead, what we're going to do is, Marion has already read for you uh, the uh, seizing of Stephen and the charges that were brought against him. And so we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 7. We'll read a little bit there, <clears throat> and um, and I'll, uh, I'll direct you. So this is God's Word, beginning in Acts chapter 7, verse 1. So remember what has happened. They've all... Uh, been there, they've uh, laid their accusations against Stephen with the Sanhedrin, and they are looking intently at Stephen. They saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Chapter 7, verse 1, we read, Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? If you'll turn over to verse 48, we'll pick up Stephen's Address there. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Let's pray together. Father, as we've come this morning now to your word, we would ask that our meditations on it and the words of my lips concerning it would be acceptable in your sight. And Father, we do pray that you would plow our hearts and that you would prepare us to hear and to receive your word. May it produce a harvest in our lives 
for your glory, for our good, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to have you raise your hands on this one, okay? How many of you all uh, know the names Julius and Ethel Rosenberg? Yeah, fair number of you. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were spies for the former USSR. Um, They were accused of uh, giving away all sorts of uh, state secrets, military secrets about radars and and uh, all sorts of things. But chief among their crimes uh, that they were uh, accused of and found guilty of was that they gave atomic and nuclear secrets early on in the Cold War uh, to the former Soviet Union. In 1951, they were tried and found guilty. Uh, There was an attempt uh, in the two years following that to make some sort of a plea agreement where they would confess and they would say that they were guilty and then um, they would have their sentences reduced because they had been sentenced to death. In 1953, they were both executed. A lot of thought has gone into what took place with them. These were the early days of the Cold War, and so uh, we were uh, very heightened in, in terms of looking for spies and all those sorts of things. Historians have gone back and looked at their case, and, um, and they agree now uh, that they were both guilty. Uh, cables have been un- unclassified, declassified, in Russia, and so they've been able to look through all of that and discern that, yes, they were indeed spies and that they had uh, um, gone about various treasonous roles. Someone authored uh, this, uh, penned this, and said, there's a consensus among historians that Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were indeed guilty, but their trial was marred by clear judicial and legal improprieties. And they should not have been executed. Distilling this consensus, a Harvard law professor said that the Rosenbergs were guilty and they were framed. They were both guilty and set up. This morning as we come to this section in Acts chapter 6, chapter 7, even running into chapter 8, we have the story of Stephen and the account is that Stephen... Uh, had been preaching and teaching against uh, various Jewish customs. And so this morning we want to look at the witness of Stephen because we have it. We have exactly what it is he believed and what he taught. So we want to look at the witness of Stephen, and we're going to do that under uh, three headings. We're going to talk about the accusations against Stephen. We're going to look at Stephen's personal defense. And then finally we're going to look at the verdict and the outcome. So the accusations. What was it that Stephen was accused of? Stephen essentially was accused of two things, of preaching and teaching against both the temple and God's law. He was, he was accused of teaching um, that, God's didn't, that God did not have to dwell specifically in the temple, and he no doubt followed Jesus' teaching, Jesus himself had taught in John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, that that building, that temple would be destroyed and that he would rebuild it in three days. This is one of the things that led to the crucifixion of Christ. Mark fourteen fifty eight tells us 
that they had that charge against Jesus that he himself taught against the temple. Jesus also taught, and no doubt Stephen followed this, that it isn't what goes into the body that makes a man clean or unclean, but it is trusting in the person and work of Christ. And it is by his name that we become children of God, not children of some ethnic descent, but we become children of God. These are the charges that were brought against Stephen. Very serious accusations. And you would expect that if he were teaching those things, that the Jewish people, religious leaders of the day, would indeed want to bring him in and charge him with crimes essentially against the state. Think of it this way, and this is somewhat hard to imagine, but think of it this way. Suppose someone rose up here in America, and they touted Americanism, being a solid, genuine, loving, caring, good American citizen. And everyone began to buy into who they were and what they taught, okay? And they were effective, and they were persuasive, and they were on all the news channels. And throughout all of that teaching... One of the things that they continued to say was that we needed to do away with the White House and the Capitol and destroy the Washington Monument, tear all of those things down. And then let's do away with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the National Anthem, the Pledge of Allegiance. And let's strip off of of everything in God we trust. Let's get rid of that and simply trust in the embodiment of the American spirit, George Washington. Hold fast to George Washington. Just trust in him. He's all you need. We'd toss him out. We, we would get rid of that guy. He would be no more American to us than anyone. Essentially, that is what Stephen is being accused of. They are coming to him and they're saying he wants to destroy our way of life. He wants to tear down the temple. He wants to preach that it's not God's laws that we have to follow that make us right with God and and all of that. And so that was the charge that they were bringing against him. You can imagine how serious it was and how strange and foreign it continued to sound in their ears as they heard it. They had heard it from Jesus. They've been hearing it somewhat now from Peter. And at this point, they have Stephen before them. It could be, however, that what Stephen preached is perhaps a little closer to home for you and I. Think about it this way, because there's a very real challenge for some of us. We've grown up in a country in which we practice religion. We're a very religious country, and so many of us go to church, and and we've grown up in religious circles, and so somehow along the way for us, what you eat and don't eat, and what you drink and don't drink, and what you smoke and don't smoke, and what religious exercises you engage in, such as reading and praying and going to church and, and being there every time the church doors are opened, and on and on, and serving 
and volunteering and giving of your time and putting money in the offering plate, perhaps all of these things are the things that you begin to trust in to fill up your vessel so that you can bring it and present it to God. It's a very real possibility. It's a very real possibility that some of you here this morning have believed that way. It's why, it's why you come to church on Easter and Christmas. Because you're filling that vessel up. It's not necessarily as a result of what has happened deep in your heart. It's that you're trying to make your heart pleasing to God through those things. See, it's no wonder when you look at this and you look at Stephen's life and you look at the things that he taught as he followed Peter and as he followed Jesus, it's no wonder that they killed him. Because when people who trust in religion hear the message of grace, it sounds completely foreign to them. That you are not saved by what you do, it sounds almost, and the accusation is, lawless. But grace, and you haven't heard the message of grace until you've been pushed to the point where you ask the question, if this grace is so amazing then, can't I just go on sinning? That's what the Apostle Paul addresses in Romans chapter 6. Remember, as he has outlined this amazing gospel that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. And as he outlines that incredibly amazing good news, we call it amazing grace, he gets to Romans 6, 1, and he anticipates that question. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And of course, Paul's answer is, by no means. You see, we've been transformed and it's from the inside out. And so this was a completely foreign thing for them to hear. And the accusations against him was that he preached against their temple and he preached against their law, their way of life. Let's look at his personal defense. This is the longest section. And the way that I want us to do this is I... I want to kind of just break it down for you into the two parts, right? Because essentially what Stephen does in his speech is he addresses both parts of uh, the accusations against him. And it's really quite amazing because he takes the charges. Acts chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest looks at him and asks, Stephen, are the charges true? And he launches into a resounding yes. First, verses 2 through 8, he talks about Abraham. And he recounts in these first numbers of, of, uh, of verses here in Acts 7, he recounts how it is that God never was defined in a locale. That, that he went down in Abraham's case to Mesopotamia and he grabbed him and he gave him a promise and he brought him back, but he never gave him one square foot of that land. See, God was not confined to Palestine. Joseph is next. And we read that he was sold into slavery and he went down to Egypt. And then in verse 9 of chapter 7, what do we see? God 
was with him. Where? In Egypt. And then Moses is next. In a long series. In verse 30, we get the seminal part of the recounting. And that is when God met with Moses. And the place where he stood was called holy ground. Finally, he covers the tabernacle and the temple, and he quotes Isaiah that God is not actually combined to any structure built by man. And what Stephen is getting at in this long address is he is essentially telling them, listen, the temple and the tabernacle were mere copies of the real heavenly reality. And you've you've attached too much meaning to those things. They were to direct your attention to God. They were, they were to point you towards Him. Not become objects of worship. Well, what about the law? Surely they had Him on that one, right? What does He do? He goes directly to their ancestors. And He ties their ancestors who had persecuted and killed the prophets who had predicted the coming of the righteous one. It's an amazing speech in that he never even mentions Jesus' name. He does call him the righteous one here. And he says, you, in very specific language, betrayed and murdered him. In other words, you had the law that was given by angels and you didn't even keep it. And the implication is because you didn't keep it, you don't honor it. You don't really love it. You don't really treasure it in your heart. And then he accuses them of being circumcised in the flesh, but in need of a real circumcision of the heart and of the ears. Peter's an amazing as Luke has already told us, the end of Acts chapter 6. An amazing person. And God has used him mightily, and he understood what Jesus taught down to the T. He understood how Jesus had taken the law and showed that it, and, and, and driven it deeper into their hearts by saying, You have heard it said, but I tell you. And then taking the law and showing that it was really intended to root out who we are, to show us our sin, to reveal our brokenness and hearts that are far from Him, instead of seeing it as something that we can keep and fulfill. So Stephen took, in his defense, he took it directly head on. And essentially, if you look at it, he is saying, guilty as charged. You've got me. So let's look at the verdict and the outcome. Of course, we've read it. You know that the outcome is that Stephen is found guilty of the charges, and they charge, and they rush him, and they are going to stone him to death. There are two parts here as we think about the verdict and the outcome that I want you to see. And one is that God used the death of Stephen in a mighty way. If you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Saul was there giving approval to his death. 
And in most of your Bibles, many of your Bibles are going to have a little subhead there, the church persecuted and scattered. And the next couple of verses tell us that on that day, the day of Stephen stoning, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And in the book of Acts, what this is, is it's the beginning of the expansion of the gospel as it continues to go from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to spread to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so Stephen's life, as he falls into the ground, as he goes into the ground, is going to produce an amazing abundance in the kingdom of God. But there's something else here that I want you to see. And that is this. We read in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and then in Luke 22, Jesus says to the high priest, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. If you have your bulletin and you grab it, you'll see that we said the Apostles' Creed there. And I want you to see something that we say the Apostles' Creed quite regularly here. And I want you to see right in the middle of it something that we repeat week after week. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And then we say what? And sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Luke recounts for us not once but twice what Stephen saw. He recounts it once in his words, and then he puts it on the lips of Stephen. That as the charges rang out, before they rushed him, before they took him and stoned him, Stephen looked up to heaven, and he saw, in one instance it's Jesus, and in the other instance it's the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. Yesterday, I, I worked in the yard, and uh, I stood with a hedge trimmer for about five hours, trimming the hedges. I was working while I stood. When I finished, what did I do? I went, and I sat down. When we talk about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, we're talking about that completed work, that it is finished. He has gone to the cross. He has paid the penalty for our sin. He has secured the righteousness that God demands for us. He's done all of that. It's free and clear. The job is done. And so he has sat down at the right hand of God the Father. But here as Stephen has borne witness to Jesus, as he has made his defense, as he has preached his sermon, as he has given, as were his last words, he has a picture and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And I think that's indicative, and and many authors and, and other theologians believe that's indicative of his work at that point. That As Stephen is about to be stoned 
as he has been declared guilty in the court of man, his Savior in heaven is standing pleading his case before the Father. Not guilty. It's really a beautiful picture. A beautiful last picture that Stephen gets to see his Savior interceding for him with the Father. Offering not Stephen's work, not Stephen's words, but his to the Father. Let me ask you the question this morning. Do you know that Lamb? The Lamb that Stephen knew? The Lamb that Stephen proclaimed? Do you know Him? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus? Or are you still holding on to the law? Let me pray for us. Our gracious God, we would thank You this morning for Your Word as we've come to it briefly in our time. We have seen the testimony of a man who loved You, a man who was filled with grace and with power. And we know that it's only by that Gospel that He had both of those in abundance. And Father, He proclaimed the same Jesus that this morning we've come to worship. And Father, we thank You for Christ's work on the cross for us, for sending Him, for His death, for the separation that He endured for us from You. And then, Father, for His resurrection that we celebrate this day and the life that He offers to us. Now, Father, I pray You give us ears to hear hearts that are ready to receive that risen Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Take your bulletin.